Hello, I'm Sam Dunlop-Doyle and you're listening to Careers for the Planet, bringing you conversations with people whose careers are creating the planet we need and explains how you can do the same. In this edition, I spoke with Cass Madden, a friend of mine who I had the pleasure of hiking with in the Peruvian Andes. Cass works as a program manager for Andes, an organization that promotes indigenous biocultural heritage. They are driven to empower indigenous communities in the high Andean valleys and also close to the Amazon rainforest. Her current program is focused on food neighborhoods. However, she does a lot more than that, as you'll soon hear. Here's our conversation. As an undergraduate, I studied anthropology and Spanish. I really had no like clear idea of what it is that I wanted to do after college. <laughs> I had thought when I entered university, I had thought that I would go on to law school. Um, but when I was in my third year, I studied abroad in Peru. Um, and did a really excellent study abroad program that was focused on indigenous peoples and rights. Um, and when I started that program, I really like still thought I would go on to law school. And it was like a factor in why I chose that program, right? Is I felt like, ooh, indigenous rights law, that would be a, like a neat field. Uh, and I mean, it, I do think it's a cool field, right? Like people who do that work deserve a lot of credit for the work that they're doing. But while I was in Peru studying, I discovered that like actually legal help wasn't the thing that communities were identifying, right? Which like, it doesn't mean that it's not a need. And I think that like potentially, right, I would have been like 20 or 21 at that point. And I was probably like simplifying things a little, but I just felt really strongly after having like been in those communities. And I, it was a really like, you know, amazing experience. And this is like pretty common in, in study abroad is that it's kind of like the first time people are in contact with populations very different from their own um and the program itself was really like experiential and so I had the opportunity to spend about a month living with an indigenous community in the Amazon um, and then I lived for a month on Takile Island which is a like an indigenous community in the south of Peru in Lake Titicaca um like through both of those experiences I felt like right people identify in those communities identified a lot of things that they wanted help and support with and really none of them were things that were legal like they weren't saying you know, we need legal title to our lands. And, and of course, right, there are other communities where that is, especially mining, right, natural resource extraction, people would really identify it like legal needs. Um, but after that, I, just, I like sort of rethought this whole plan I had had, you know, do I want to go to law school if people aren't actually asking me for legal help? It's like they were identifying a need for like capacity building type projects and uh, access to financial resources, right, is a huge one. Um, when I graduated from university, I still didn't really know what it was that I was hoping to do. Part of the reason I got a degree in Spanish is because I knew I would then be qualified to teach Spanish. Um, so my first job after university was as a Spanish teacher um, and I did not love it. <laughs> so I ended up taking a job in fundraising at a university. Um, and it was great experience, you know, in terms of like fundraising being something that is a need in all at like NGOs, but was definitely not my, and I knew when I took it, right? It wasn't like I felt I had some real passion for raising money for private universities. Um, and so after two years there, I felt like I had kind of like hit this wall, right? Where like I knew I wasn't doing the work I was passionate about, but with an undergraduate degree in anthropology, it also wasn't like feeling super straightforward to, uh, you know, start sending applications for the kind of roles that I felt like would be meaningful work. Um, so I went back to grad school um, and I did this really amazing one year master's program, which was a global degree. Um, 
The degree itself is in climate change and global sustainability um, through the School for International Training. Um, and I spent a semester in Iceland in a tiny little town in the north called Isafjörður, which is like on the, the western coast of Iceland. Um, and then I spent a semester in Zanzibar, Tanzania. Um, and then I came back to, to Cusco, to Peru, to write my thesis. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, grad school in general, I think is like a really different experience than university, right? You enter, you're an adult, you're not a teenager. Um, and I definitely went in like pretty focused on being able to transition into doing climate oriented work. I knew I really wanted to be working in, in a space with indigenous populations, um, but that work is almost inherently connected to environmental work, right? It's, it's really challenging to think of um, like what successful uh, you know, interventions and projects and, and, you know, visions look like in Indigenous communities that don't take into account the environment. And it's definitely a, a sort of growing, you know, like, conversation globally about using what's called traditional ecological knowledge, it's like, really, we're talking about Indigenous knowledge, as a basis for climate change solutions. Um, and I mean, that it's somewhat controversial, right? There's a lot of issues there around, like, are you just, you know, taking Indigenous practice like, you know, it, it, there's a lot of argument about this being kind of like a new form of colonialism, right? Where you're just kind of like dropping in and, and cherry picking, uh, but, you know, forms of, of intervention that you like, and then not necessarily like creating holistic solutions for populations that are vulnerable. Um, and so when I was in graduate school to one of the requirements for graduation was to do an internship. Um, and I did my internship with an organization here in Cusco called Andes, um, which is where I am still currently working. Um, like some of it was definitely luck and some of it I think is um, like maybe not quite as challenging as it seems sometimes, right? Like if before I went to grad school, I knew that um, like spending time abroad was a priority for me, but being a professional abroad was something that felt almost impossible. Like this I think is a pretty common barrier where it's like, well, like I'd love to work in the international space, but how would I ever do it? Um, and like, honestly, the, the number one thing I learned is like, the only thing to do is just to do it. Like if you, you know, if you apply for a job, you might get it. Just like if you show up in a country, you might find a job there. Um, it's kind of like one of those leap of faith things. Um, and actually like getting a, a visa and a job in Peru is, is not that challenging. So like, that's not true of all countries, but here was reasonably straightforward. Um, and yeah, and this is, um, like I really, you know, I feel really lucky that it did work out, right? I would have been still very lucky to just do an internship there, but it ended up being good timing where they had a staff member leaving a position. Um, and while I was working as an intern, I helped with some grant writing projects um, and we got a large grant. So it was able to like fund a position. Um, so I spent the last two years working with Andes and we work, eh, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of areas. Broadly, we work in biocultural heritage and agrobiodiversity conservation. Um, and with Andes, I work, there's two projects we have in Peru. One which is called the Parque de la Papa, which is a, it's the sort of most fully realized project in, in terms of like, you could go there and you could see it. It would make sense what you were seeing. It's an organization of five communities um, that work on uh, like conservation of all native crops, but especially potato. Um, they have the, the largest diversity of potato found in any single area in the world. Um, and then we work in a, another area called Lattice, where it's not as obvious. If you were to show up, you wouldn't necessarily recognize the project. Um, but Lattice is much more rural than the communities of the Potato Park. And um, because of that, they, they have really different needs. But they also are much less um, like in touch with urban and commercial culture. 
And so our project there is really oriented around barter markets. Um, and I mean, my, my work is definitely broad. This is one thing about working for small NGOs is that you end up doing a little bit of everything. Um, my role technically has to do with research and modeling. Um, one of the things that I focused on a lot in graduate school is data science. Um, it was something that like I sort of wished someone had told me earlier, right? Like when, I wish when I was in university, someone had mentioned to me that these sorts of like technical skills would be really important. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, there, there, it's also a thing which has developed really rapidly, right? 10 years ago, it wasn't that important. <laughs> you know, today, a lot of fields really like, you know, need people who are good with data. Um, so in graduate school, I focused a lot on especially spatial analysis. Um, it's like, you know, on paper, my role with Andes is about doing spatial and statistical analyses and research. Um, in practice, I do that. I also do a lot of um, like capacity building in communities, right? Doing workshops, working with groups. Um, I support a lot of fundraising, write a lot of grant writing. Um, this is also one thing that I had never thought about at all before working abroad, but English language skills are a huge need in really almost every nonprofit um, because the majority of financing that's available for really any kind of project, but especially like sort of sustainable development projects tends to be coming from Europe and the US. Um, and the, the language in which you must almost always must submit materials is English. Um, and it's definitely, it's, a, it's something I've thought about a lot, right? Is like, that doesn't seem like a, a very equitable system, right? <laughs> to be expecting that, at, you know, countries that have identified need for, for sustainable development financing would also have um, like people, you know, highly fluent in English. Um, yeah, it seems a bit <laughs> <but> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> like, it's definitely um, like a, a, you know, a somewhat easy entrance into doing work internationally is actually like, you know, high level English language skills are, are in high demand. Um, and it's, you know, for me, it's been good experience to, to do some grant writing. It's not my, um, you know, truest passion, but it's actually, and I, I mean, I recognize, right, that it is actually like, you know, in the short term, much more useful than doing statistical analyses, right? Like a lot of the research work that I do, I feel like I feel proud of the work. I know that it has the potential to have an impact, but it won't have an impact this month, right? <laughs> Whereas like, you know, writing a grant and getting financing allows us to you know, actually continue doing the day-to-day -day work. Um, and yeah, the, the work that I do is definitely like the, the sort of overarching, um, you know, vision is, is really about resilience, right? It's about like, how do we, um, you know, create models for yeah, development, but sort of more broadly for living, right? For especially rural communities that aren't based on these like, you know, highly capitalist, capitalistic and, um, like global, right, articulated supply chains, especially around food. Um, and like, you know, there are all kinds of globalized systems that one could look at, but food is really a constant um, everywhere. And it's something that like in a lot of climate change, uh, you know, work until about five-ish years ago, like really wasn't being treated as though it was a part of climate solutions. Um, it's like, you know, it was really, like when I was in university, if people were talking about climate change, it was all about energy, right? It was like, we need to have sustainable energy systems, which is very true. We do need sustainable energy systems, but food systems are, uh, you know, a tremendous contributor to, it's also, right, food systems present this, um, 
you know, sort of unique case where they're both uh, like, you know, cause and effect of climate change where huge amounts of emissions come from food systems. But as the climate changes more, those same systems become more and more vulnerable. It's like our work is really focused on um, like sort of, you know, creating and understanding models for sustainable food systems. Um, and the, the goal, this is the, you know, the sort of articulation of my research, we're the secretariat for an international organization called the International Network of Mountain Indigenous Peoples um, that has members in 11 countries, Peru being the only South American, mostly they're Asian countries. Um, and so the goal is to like replicate this model that we've created called food neighborhoods in each of those 11 countries. Um, and then hopefully someday beyond, right? That like if we had 11 good sites in the world, then anyone could learn from them and start their own project. How does one get, get into that? Do you feel like you took a traditional route into that area or do you think there are other ways yeah. that people get into that? Yeah, for sure. I definitely, I think I took a reasonably traditional route into working in like the indigenous space. I definitely didn't take a traditional route into working in the food space, right? Like I think there's a notion that to work in, in agriculture or in food systems, and I mean, there is an element of this, which is true, right? This isn't to like discount it, but definitely the traditional route and like the most valued would be to have like a very hard sciences background in like agricultural sciences or botany. Um, I have a decent amount of, right, studying climate change was a lot of hard sciences, but it's not, right, like when you're studying climate science, it's not about like, you know, the, the physiology of corn plants, right, you're studying like, you know, global earth systems. Um, the flip side though, and this is one thing I think in climate change work in general, is that the work itself is like very, very intersectional, right, like there's no, there's no one specialization that someone could have which would cover the totality of things that you would need to be creating interventions for. Um, this was one of the reasons that I chose the grad program that I did is because it like its whole mission is to be an interdisciplinary program. Um, it's like the, the degree, the semester that I spent in Iceland was focused on hard sciences and the semester that I spent in Zanzibar was focused on social sciences. Um, uh, like sort of in the space of, of sustainable development, right? Like a more development practice than than climate science. Um, and then for my thesis, right, you got to like kind of choose what you were doing. Because um, like my goal really, right, I applied for a couple of other programs that were sort of more traditional science programs, um, but knew that really my goal wasn't to do um, like desk work, right? I didn't really want to... <laughs> Like, and you know, being able to analyze data is definitely good, right? Being able to understand how plants work is good, right? But like those skills on their own aren't actually enough to um, like create fully workable solutions. You know, we need people who do those things as part of our teams. Um, and yeah, in terms of like working in the indigenous space, I think is like, you know, I don't know that there's any one sort of qualification that's being looked for. I think it's um, like in some ways it's kind of a, like I don't really know the word, like a mindset type of thing, right? Like there's definitely some amount of knowledge which one needs to have, but it's much more about like a willingness to learn and to uh, like be collaborative, right? I think that in in climate change work, when it comes to indigenous people, there's like a dangerous tendency to um, you know, like stereotype and generalize, right? There's a lot of thinking of indigenous people as being somehow like inherently protectors of the earth. 
Um, which, like, of course, there are lots and lots of indigenous cosmologies which, um, you know, conceptualize the natural world very different than Western ideologies. But that actually doesn't mean that, like, just by virtue of having been born indigenous, any one human being is a, you know, a protector of the planet, um, or that indigenous communities are, like, therefore obliged to act as protectors of the environment, right? Like, they are fully autonomous human beings and human communities that make their own choices. Um, that sometimes actually aren't good for the environment. Um, and so like certainly, right, and this is the thing I've learned the most working with on this, right, is like one of our goals is really about this kind of articulation, right, between, we call it trans situ, which comes from botany, right? In botany, you have what's called in situ conservation, which means that you're um, like conserving plants in, you know, out in the world, they're growing somewhere, and ex situ conservation, which is gene banks. And there's been a, like slow movement towards the idea of trans situ conservation. And we use the term to talk about all kinds of different things, right? And so we talk about like trans situ knowledge, right? This idea that like indigenous knowledge has a lot of value and many lessons, but Western science has a lot of value and many lessons. And the real goal is to figure out like, how do you articulate, right? How do you identify what the, the most effective interventions might be? And sometimes no one system is going to work, right? You're, you're sort of combining things. Um, like, yeah, in, in terms of um, like science, right? And climate science in particular, for me, one of the biggest challenges is, is communication, right? Science communication, I think is a field which is like not um, terribly emphasized. And there's a real need for people who are good at communicating, right? And explaining issues to people who maybe don't have formal training in these areas, right? It's like, it's one thing to be able to explain climate change or to explain agriculture or, right, any one of these systems to somebody with a graduate degree, right, who, like, already has a background in these issues. But in the world, like, you're not working with people who have graduate degrees, right? You're working with people who are living there, who are working the land, who are growing plants. And so, like, you know, I have colleagues who are agronomists, I have colleagues who are engineers, right, and, like, really our task is like, how do we take these concepts and make them useful, right? Explainable, how do we communicate them? And similarly for our indigenous partners, right? Like a challenge for them is like, how do they communicate with us, right? Like we weren't born in their communities. We ourselves are not. And some of my colleagues are indigenous, right? Like they certainly are able to transverse that barrier more easily than me, but like in general in climate work, there, there's not, there's definitely not one, like one path. <laughs> It's like, you'll choose the one thing that you'll be more of an expert in, but unless you're going to do like really technical bench science, right, where you're like working in a gene bank somewhere and like, you know, cataloging, cataloging the genomes of native species, right, like then, yeah, you would just need that one area. But any like sort of climate work that you're going to do in the world, right, in the field, like you'll have one thing that you know more about, but you'll really kind of need to like work on all of it. So, you know, it's one thing that can make it sort of overwhelming, but it's also part of what's like exciting about the work or enjoyable about the work. Yeah, that, and that sounds really encouraging as well, to be honest. Um, that's, that's something that I've noticed <laughs> with my interviews with, um, or my conversations with other people is that um, so few people have an, a formal education in what they're working in you know? Right. Um, yeah, so. Sometimes like put formal education as a barrier that doesn't like necessarily exist, mm -hmm. right? It was like, there are of course lots of projects and employers and whatever that are looking for some amount of, uh, you know, like formal education or experience. 
but really like the field is quite broad, right? It's like, you know, there's not, I, you know, I definitely, I felt very much the same before I did my graduate degree, right? And it's like, and honestly, I think like the work I'm doing today, I wouldn't have been as prepared for it if I hadn't gone to graduate school, but I still would have been hired, right? Like they would have still seen value in having an anthropologist on a team. <laughs> it's sure. like, you know, it's definitely sure. easy to think that like, well, you know, I didn't study climate science, so. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I, there's just no entrance into this field for me. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, you know, I, I think if you have a, a passion for something, you should, you know, take that passion and whatever else you have and just jump into it, right? And, you know, start looking exactly. for the opportunities. Um, grant writing really stood out to me, you said about, about grant writing and just having a, a good level of English. You know, I'm sure, sure. a lot of people out no, there actually, are able to tick those boxes. You know, knowing that you have a, a background in, in advertising and marketing, this is actually something that like we have identified on this, but we're a part of a, one of the um, organizations that funds us, we're a part of like a kind of consortium, right? With the other people who are funded by them. Uh, the, the organization is called the Agroecology Fund. And recently we had this kind of um, like round table discussion about digital marketing, right? Which is like a real identified need in the nonprofit sector, right? Especially in sustainable development. That is um, like, we have discovered it's virtually impossible to hire someone in Cusco who has like the right experience to do digital marketing and communications, right? It's like the roles mean different things at different places, but like with a background in advertising and marketing and as a fluent English speaker, like you already have loads of skills that environmental nonprofits are looking for. <laughs> well, that's, that's reassuring, that's reassuring. Um, so let's see, um, yeah, so also um, how about, I hope this isn't too personal, but how about no. money? Are you are you financially stable with what you do? Are you happy? Yeah. So this is um, certainly, I think, the biggest barrier to working abroad. Um, I get paid like a Peruvian wage, right? And I'm paid a fair wage. It's not that I'm like you know barely scraping by, right? It's like the job I have is a good job, and by standards in Cusco, it's like a, a really really good job. In comparison to a wage that you could earn in the U.S. or in Europe, in Canada it's it feels like volunteering <laughs> and so the certainly the challenge right for me it works right because it's enough to live here like it's enough to live very comfortably in Cusco um and you know to to save a little bit right not nearly what it would be like if I was working um, in the U.S. but certainly enough to you know to like feel somewhat financially stable but it's certainly a, a challenge, right? And like in general doing work um, like for nonprofits, right? But even like, you know, not even just nonprofits but like sort of for like a project because you're passionate about it. Uh, <laughs> it's like, you know, I think there's always a little bit of a trade off, you know, the dream is that you would find like a project that you're really passionate about or you feel like you're making a difference. And also they pay you enough that you're like, you know you, you don't have to worry about money at all. Um, if that job exists, like I don't know what it is. <laughs> oh, but yeah. it's certainly possible to um you know to to make it work. And I think you know, one thing in terms of working abroad that's nice is um 
like there's an awareness, right? That like as a foreigner, you would have different salary expectations than than a local person would have. And you certainly bring uh, like skills that a local person might not have. Um, so like in my experience, typically foreigners are paid a little bit higher by NGOs in, in whatever country they're working in. Like it, it, it can be um, like reasonably flexible, right? Where like if with Andes, if I wanted to, I could work like half time and you know teach English online half time. Like there's certainly things like those sorts of jobs where you actually can make quite good money, um, and it's not such a big commitment that you can't be working on a a local you know sort of project. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely. I mean, it's, it's certainly a, a struggle in some ways, right? Is that like the the salary is is never going to be competitive with what what you would be earning in in a you know the the global north and especially if you're comparing with like a you know a sort of corporate a for-profit type type job in the global north mm-hmm. then it, it feels like you're volunteering for your whole life <laughs> sure sure yeah absolutely but um yeah i think as it becomes more visible you know the the cost of things you know so for for instance sure. the the environmental damage or the emissions of what it takes to pay someone in the global north, you know, that that money didn't come from nowhere, you know? Right. So the the money maybe that you're getting paid, you could say has a lower environmental uh, footprint right. uh, compared to what somebody else working in another company <laughs> or doing whatever. Um, so maybe one day that will be factored into the salary and maybe it might be even that at some point in history <laughs> um, you, know, yeah. you know for me like when I was you know leaving when I was finishing my graduate degree I felt like it was just for me personally more important to be doing work that I really cared about and it's like if I have to decide like what am I going to prioritize and I mean, I was very lucky to be able to do that, right? Like, I know there are many people who who don't have the option to like decide on their work just because they care about it. Um, but I was in a position where I could um, like make it work, right? It was like, well, I can stay here and do this work that I'm really passionate about and sacrifice a little on the like financial stability, or I can move back to the US and have no guarantee of like a project that I'm equally as passionate about, but, you know? And, and in that trade-off, I decided that I, I would rather be here doing doing this work than uh, you know back home making making more money yeah yeah that's beautiful that's I that's that that <laughs> bit is definitely going to be going into the podcast um so <laughs> so what future are you working towards yeah the the thing um that I would say like personally I'm the most um enthusiastic about right that I feel like our work is really contributing to uh, that's okay. I guess there are two, right? One, and I think that this is something which like globally we're seeing some movement on is um, like better rights for indigenous peoples, right? Especially in terms of land security. And in the, the world that exists, uh, territory rights are far more secure when there's something permanent, right? When there's permanent infrastructure, when communities are well organized. It's like part of our goal is to like create structures by which communities can like have the level of organization, which leads to secure territory rights. Um, that's not necessarily related directly to climate change, um, except for that we know um, globally that indigenous peoples occupy about 10% of the world's territory, but they conserve over 50% of its its biodiversity, right? It's like in that sense, it is actually really good conservation policy to protect indigenous territory. Um, 
on the like environmental side, the the part that I'm sort of the most excited about, and this is what my research is really focused on, is um, like more localized food systems. In in the US and in Europe, they, there's been a, a sort of new movement around what's called food sheds, um, which is an idea of like kind of drawing a boundary around an urban area and then understanding what is the, like, you know, the sort of carrying capacity of the land have to look like in order to provide for that community, right? With the idea that a truly sustainable system is mostly a local one, right? There might be certain products that we can imagine bringing from farther away, but that really like eh, at least 90% of our, our daily needs should be met within uh, like a certain radius, right? And depending on the the size of your population, that radius becomes bigger, right? So like a food shed for New York City looks really different than a food shed for, you know, whatever, for Cusco even, <laughs> right? It's like our work, it's not about food sheds, but I think food sheds is an interesting um, way to translate this work into urban areas, right? It's like we recognize that urban populations are like actually a really essential part of a food system that the work I'm doing with Andes doesn't directly work on, on urban um, food supplies. Um, but like really this, this sort of goal of reimagining the way that we interact with, especially food, right? But by extension of food, our entire environment, right? Like producing food is really land intensive, requires a lot of land, but it's also really people intensive. It requires a lot of work. And, uh, you know, one thing for me, which has been really inspiring about the work I've done in Peru is that uh, you know, you're like, I spend most of my time with people who are directly producing food. Um, and it's, I mean, it's really inspiring, right? It's very hard work, but it's a very different way of kind of organizing life, right? It's not about, you know, most of the people I work with have very little um, capital, right? They have no cash. They don't have a, they're, they're really not a part of like the formal economy, but their needs are met, right? They don't necessarily self-identify as poor in the same way that um, these kind of like, you know, global formulas would say that these people are poor. Um, and especially the project in Lattice, right? is like very much thinking about um, like solidarity economies, right? This idea that like, there are actually radically different ways that we could think about organizing our world that's not prioritizing profit, right? Cause like ultimately the world we live in prioritizes the bottom line, right? And it's like, we sometimes trick ourselves into thinking that human well-being is the goal, but it's really not, right? Like the systems have gotten away from us and they're not about creating human well-being. They're really about creating profit. Um, and we are now seeing like, you know, these kind of small, right? The, the projects I work on, and there are many, many other people working on similar projects, right? All over the world where like within this big global system, you do see these little areas, right? Where you're starting to see like local resistance to these big global systems. Um, and yeah, my, my like hope, right? Is that maybe 20 years from now, we'll see 50 potato parks in the world, right? It won't, it's not that the world would look 100% different than what it looks like today, but maybe everyone, you know, would have at some point visited an area like this and have at least had exposure to what an alternative could look like. Um, and like a recognition, right? And this is something that in Cusco is is certainly a lot more um, and like visible. It's more top of mind here that like, I, you know, I never really heard about this in the US. It's not like people talking about food producers. It's like here in Cusco, there's still a pretty strong connection to people who produce food. Um, but it's like, it's not a job that we value globally, right? There's not a lot of respect for, for small agriculturalists. Um, 
but there, like there are ways that we can imagine a world in which there would be, right? It's like that is, it's valuable work and it's really the only sustainable way we can produce food, right? Having these like massive monocultures of, of GMO corn to feed massive feedlots of um, cows to, you know, then ship them across the world. It's like, there's no way that will ever be a sustainable system, um, but we can imagine that smallholder agriculture could be. Um, it just requires a different way of thinking about value. Um, and that's really like my hope, right? It's one thing I really like about the InMIP project, that like we're already working on, on implementing and the implementation is definitely really challenging. It's not a straightforward um, project, but it's clear that there's a lot of interest um, despite huge cultural differences, really different economies. Like there's still a sense globally that this kind of organization is something that could work. Um, and that, that that's inspiring, right? It makes me feel like we didn't just have like a one-off success here in the potato park, but that we really could imagine this working other places. Nice, that's awesome. Um, I I think you've you've covered everything pretty pretty much. Is there <laughs> is there is there anything um that you don't like about the work that you do? Hmm. I think the biggest challenge is definitely burnout. Uh, and I think this is true of almost anything in the climate change field, but especially um, like working with people and at the intersection of like sustainable development and climate change, right? Is like the populations that I'm working with here are some of the poorest populations in, in Peru, right? And by extension, that makes them some of the poorest communities in the world. And so there's always more need. Right. And that can be really challenging. It's like you go, you have a great day, and then the next day you have to go and do exactly all over again. Right. It's like it's not, and you know, these are really big problems. They're not something where you necessarily feel um day to day or even year to year progress on. It's like, you know, you're working really hard, you're doing everything you can, and it's it, it can feel like nothing's changing. <laughs> And that is definitely a huge challenge, like, uh, uh, you know, and, and certainly, right, like working with people, right, but especially working with vulnerable people, it can be really hard to take a step back, right, it can be really hard to say no, it's like there's a, a feeling of like, no, I can never take a vacation day, or like, you know, it'd be really selfish to say no to this request, or, which isn't true, right, like having healthy boundaries, uh, with people, with your job, right, is important, regardless of what your field is, um, and you know, if somebody's working for Google and takes a vacation, we don't think they're selfish, um, right? Like we should extend ourselves that same kindness even when we're working in in social projects. But it's certainly harder to, uh, you know, like feel feel okay about taking a step back, and certainly can be uh, like exhausting, right? It, it's a lot of a lot of very small things that you hope someday will be a part of a big impact. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And is there any moment that stands out in your mind that you are most proud of? Hmm. Well, that's a great question. Mm. It's not one single moment, but I would say in the past like six months, the achievement that I'm the most proud of is we've been working with, a, we have a collective, um, an economic collective in the potato park that's focused around medicinal plants. Um, it's a group of eight women and they've existed for many years, but always been um, a little bit of a mess, right? It's like they, they claim they wanna do the work, but then they're not really making progress on things, right? It's like, 
one thing which can be challenging in general about working in in communities that don't have economic resources is that there's a real hesitance to um, like try things if you aren't 100% sure they're going to work, right? Because it's like you're investing resources that you don't feel you really have. It's like if you're not going to get results, it's just like better to not do it. And that's a really um, like difficult perspective to work with when you're trying to run what is essentially a small business. Um, but I've been working with this group for about six months and we've reached a point where like they're really independently managing things. Um, they're really enthusiastic. One of the members is now doing social media um, and I taught them how to make soap. My mother has a like a little soap making, like it's not even a small business. She sells it at like farmer's markets um, in the US. So I sort of already knew how to make soap and then I spent a lot of time on the phone with her. Uh, like getting more instructions and taught the women how to make soap. Um, so now they're making nice soaps. They make uh, that using a similar recipe shampoo that's in a bar so that you don't have to have like plastic bottles or um, they make tea bags. Um, we started making toothpaste, which they're not selling like in the city, but they're providing to their neighbors. Um, it's one that the Andes, usually the, the NGO, right, Andes doesn't financially subsidize the economic collectives, but we did agree to subsidize the toothpaste, right? We said like, we will just pay for the toothpaste so that you can give it to your neighbors. Um, and I feel really proud of them. Like it's a project which actually, you know, it's not creating a ton of income, but it's creating enough income that they feel like it's worth their time. Um, and is like, a, you know, one real challenge in, in rural communities, right, is that there's a huge amount of out-migration because people feel like there aren't opportunities for them, right? It's like, well, I have to move to Cusco, I have to move to Lima. Um, and I feel like this project for these women has really proved that like, no, you can create opportunities wherever you are. You don't have to like move to Lima and like be abused by employers as, you know, like a rural person who might not speak fluent Spanish. Um, and yeah, so that's like my most recent success story. Is that they're they're doing great. Their soaps are lovely. We have some stores in Cusco that are selling their products. The the woman from the group who's putting stuff on social media is like making sales over Facebook. Um, so that's an exciting to see. And like an exciting, um, you know, to see it actually overall in some ways happened more quickly than I thought they might be able to, to you know, sort of get a hang of it. And also like a, you know, a nice reminder that like some of the tools that we sometimes think are like kind of beyond the reach of people who don't have formal education are like actually not that hard to learn, right? Like learning how to use a computer, learning how to use social media. It's like you make a huge difference for your small business. And like we got there in six months. <laughs> we need better food systems and support the needs of indigenous communities. It's clear from our conversation that Cass's work takes place at an important intersection between these key two issues, and I'm grateful to have someone as passionate as Cass involved with the project. If you're interested in learning more about Asociación Andes, check out andes.org.pe. Andes is spelled A-N-D-E-S, just in case you were wondering. You can also find sustainable locations, businesses, services, or groups on our website, myecomaps.com. It's like your Maps app, but with a sustainable twist, myecomaps.com. Thank you for listening to Careers for the Planet. People who care about the health of our planet and its inhabitants are the most precious resource right now. It's been an honor to have you here. Take care.